0: Hello, and welcome to the Go Gamecocks podcast, presented by the State Newspaper. I am sports reporter Greg Hadley, and I am joined by Gamecocks football beat reporter Ben Briner. Ben, let's hop right into it. South Carolina football actually played a game this weekend. You were in attendance when the Gamecocks played Tennessee. What was the experience like in the stadium?
1: More normal than I kind of expected. Now, granted, we were kind of trapped in the press box, so we were not wandering around the concourses seeing what was up. Obviously, there were fewer people. Obviously, uh, you know, the atmosphere around the stadium was less packed overall. But you still saw a lot of kind of the the normal flavor of it. Honestly, it still sounded pretty loud. Not, you know, unbelievable roared loud, but considering you had many, many fewer possible people in that building, it actually felt kind of pretty normal. I mean, maybe that's just a result of all the insanity that has gone on the past six months but you know it felt normal and as a
0: thousand people joked on twitter making it feel like a normal game was south carolina falling apart late (laughs) yes yes
1: that uh that is an accurate statement uh it was a very will must champ era kind of game
0: So the Gamecocks lost 31-27. I think most people watch the game, so we won't spend too much time recapping it. But I did just want to get your overall impressions of this new-look offense that we've been talking about for so long. Offensive coordinator Mike Bobo's system debuting, transfer quarterback Colin Hill getting his first snaps in the SEC. Overall, what did you think?
1: I thought he played pretty well. Um, I know that there was an SEC network host who predicted he would have a 300-yard game, And he would have had a 300-yard game if he had not caught one of his own passes for a loss of 11. That's an actual thing. That really happened. I I thought he played well. Um, He had a pick that I really didn't think was his fault. He stood in against pressure decently. It kind of got to him a little bit early. But overall, you know, I think it was a pretty good debut, especially considering the fact that there isn't really any game-breaking talent around him. There's good talent, but... You know, none of it is, you know, going to change things in a big, dramatic way, like, say, people thought a guy like uh, Marshawn Lloyd was going to.
0: I mean, it kind of speaks to the state of the offense that they scored 27 points, and that was as many points as they scored against any non-FCS opponent last year. And that felt like a win, especially after a first half where things were looking a little shaky after that first drive. And like you said, the pressure really seemed to to, to get to Hill especially in that first half, the offensive line as a whole definitely seemed to struggle at times. Is that fair to say?
1: I think it was. I think well Muschamp downplayed the pass protection issues a little bit, but definitely in the first half, it seemed like they were just having a lot of trouble with Tennessee's edge guys. Muschamp said the tight ends had problems in run blocking, and he came down hard on the right side of the offensive line, so that's uh, second-year starter Jovan Gwen, as well as sort of a rotating cast of right tackles, so they definitely had some issues in the run game on that front, and that's something they'll have to try to clean up and then Dylan wantham just kind of struggled in terms of pass protection it It seemed like some of those early issues involved Colin Hill sort of having to to move, having to make some decisions on the run, having to throw before he was really comfortable doing so and that's kind of an issue because this was supposed to be sort of the strength of that offense. The The offensive line was the thing that they said, this is what we think we know we have. And it didn't quite work out that way. So that'll be a spot to shore up. I think Ja'Kai Moore is going to be the right tackle going forward. Uh, Will Champ said they would just keep competing over it, but he also let Ja'Kai Moore talk. And maybe that just means he doesn't totally care about that, that front. But usually, you know, they don't let non-starters who are competing for jobs talk kind of in that situation.
0: You mentioned the lack of, of game-breaking talent around Colin Hill and that offensive line, and that kind of addresses also what you're saying about we thought the offensive line was the one thing we did know. As it turned out on Sunday, Shy Smith was the most reliable and explosive member of South Carolina's offense. Not totally unexpected, given that he was, you know, the the clear number one option coming in. But the extent to which he really was South Carolina's main and almost only weapon was a little bit surprising to me. He caught 10 passes for 140 yards. Outside of him, the only other receiver to catch a pass was Xavier Leggett. Nick Muse also got involved at the tight end position. But I think, speaking to Will Muschamp on Tuesday... A lot of people kind of brought up the fact that there just isn't a lot of, you know, options that they can go to. And how much do you think that will be an issue moving forward if, if teams can kind of key on on Shy Smith and say, we're going to shut you down and dare the other players to beat us?
1: You know, a lot of people seemed really concerned about that. And I kind of found myself less concerned for no other reason than this isn't sort of the first time that we've seen an offense that relies heavily on a few people. Like... Lane Kiffin was famously known for this. Now, granted, his talent's a little bit different, but he was known for offenses that could just feed the ball to certain wide receivers. And I just kind of don't know if that's necessarily a problem. You look back at, I think it was the 2010 Gamecocks offense back when they had Alshon Jeffrey. They didn't get the ball to that many playmakers. It was a pretty tight group, but they were good playmakers, so it was fine. Now, the two issues I see on this front would be People will often say, well, what if they game plan to take away Shy? Well, maybe if he's good enough they won't be able to. We'll just kinda have to see how that works, what that looks like. It's it strikes me as one of those things where people talk about spying quarterbacks where it sounds like this, you know, nominally good idea, but in practice it's a lot more tricky. So, you know, I mean, is there a chance that they'll just take away Shy and then they'll have to figure it out? Yeah, but I think The running backs, Leggett, Muse, I think that those pieces probably might be okay enough to overcome certain defenses. Uh, And yeah, I just, I don't totally know that it's that big a deal. Now, if Shai Smith gets hurt, then you're in some real trouble because then you don't have him at all and, and the defense can redistribute his attention elsewhere. But honestly, I don't necessarily know that that's a bad thing. I've watched lots of offenses where they focus on getting the ball to the guys who are good. And usually that's not a terrible idea.
0: Shifting focus a bit to the running backs and the the run game, sophomore Kevin Harris got the start. He totaled 55 yards on 13 carries. Deshaun Fenwick and Zaquandre White got in after him with freshman Marshawn Lloyd out with a torn ACL. What did you see from the run game? It didn't seem like any running back in particular popped out as clearly taking the bull by the horns and leading this room, but at the same time, no one was clearly completely ineffective.
1: Yeah, I thought that everyone kind of was okay. Everyone had moments. The run game overall didn't produce what they'd hoped it produced, but a lot of that seemed to sort of fall on the offensive line, and especially the tight ends. The tight end blocking at times was a little abysmal. And, you know, you kind of need all those pieces working because it's not like, you know, to go back to the Marshawn Lloyd thing, it's not like any of these running backs are so good that they're going to really make an offensive line right. They're going to have to you know, rely on the offensive line to make something for them. They're going to have to make their own plays as well. I remember one particular play, I think, I can't remember if it was Jovan Gwen or one of the offensive tackles, but someone just got swept completely past, and I think Zaquandre White got uh, flipped up on his head just because you know someone hit him three yards in the backfield. That's not going to go well. So, I thought the backs were actually mostly fine. I don't know if any of them is great or superb. None of them showed quite as much spark as, say, a freshman Rico Dowdle. But I think that there's pieces there, and I think if the offensive line can, as much champ like, say, get a hat on a hat, at least, and stop letting guys in the backfield, I think that actually probably will just sort of stabilize.
0: Hey there. Like what you hear? Good news. You can help ensure The State continues making journalism you love to read, watch, and listen to. If you're more into sports than news, you'd probably like our Sports Pass membership, which gives you access to unlimited sports coverage for just $30 for the first year. Subscribe to Sports Pass at thestate.com/sportspass. You can also read more Gamecocks news by downloading the Go Gamecocks app or by signing up for our newsletter at thestate.com/newsletters. Thanks for supporting local journalism. Now, back to today's episode. Switching over to the defensive side of the ball, I wanted to talk about this, especially because I think it it dovetails nicely with this upcoming week's game against Florida, given that the Gators opened with a 51-35 win over Ole Miss, and quarterback Kyle Trask looks so good. That's obviously a concern for South Carolina's defense. I was interested what you thought the Gamecocks did well and where they can improve upon, just general impressions of the defense from this first week.
1: I thought it was up and down, had some sloppy moments, had a few flash plays, but in general, the back seven is thin in a lot of spots, and that got a little bit exposed with a couple of injuries. Um, And the defensive line looked fine at points, got pushed around at points, And didn't necessarily look like the game-changing force that a lot of folks kind of thought or hoped it could be. So I think the defense played a kind of okay game in stretches. But, you know, it got pushed around a lot in the first drive of the second half and uh, in the game-winning drive. And even in the drive where they were trying to burn clock, they did manage to at least get one first down on the Gamecocks defense that was dialed up completely against the run so i thought it was okay and i think florida could really cause some problems because florida has a bunch of super super talented players and you know i mean trask is a really high-end distributor throws a good ball you know you've got a guy like tony in the slot who's just a ridiculously good athlete and else everywhere else they're just really solid to quite good Oh, and and they have Kyle Pitts. He's pretty good, too.
0: Kyle Pitts, generally considered probably the best tight end in the country. He went off against Ole Miss. Kyle Trask, I think, threw four touchdowns against Ole Miss. It's an intimidating unit, and as you mentioned, the back seven for South Carolina was definitely exposed in a lot of ways, especially when starting quarterback Israel Mukwamu had to go to the bench in the second half with what later turned out to be a a groin injury. And in his place... Cam Smith, who we were talking about earlier off air, is one of the more highly rated defensive back recruits South Carolina's had under Muschamp. He just had uh, a night I don't think he'll ever, ever want to relive. That was just a brutal showing for the young kid. He's he's a redshirt freshman, and he was exposed in a lot of ways. And it was against a quarterback in Tennessee's Jarek Arantano, who his accuracy was, was not quite all there, uh, which you can't rely on if you're the defense moving forward, especially against a guy like Kyle Trask.
1: Yeah, if they give up the kind of open receivers, those few extra open receivers that they did against Tennessee, Kyle Trask will make them pay more, and that would be a problem for them. I'm sure that if you go to the tape in some spots, Cam Smith was better than people think. That's the nature of being a defensive back, is that when you mess up, folks notice, and when you don't mess up, uh, you're not on the screen. That being said, he had at least four notably screen-worthy moments, particularly egregious. I don't even know what kind of penalty it exactly was. It was called a pass interference, which was maybe not accurate, but whatever else he did was probably worth 15 yards anyway. He kind of lost contact with a receiver on the game-winning touchdown. He got, uh, not stiff arm, but he he missed a tackle on a, a short hit that turned into a bigger gain. And right at the end of the game, he, I guess, couldn't get off a block or... Didn't hear something that uh, Jamie Robinson said and uh, a ball kicked off his leg and that ended things. So he definitely had a rough game, but, you know, it was game one and playing actual meaningful snaps. So maybe he'll improve. But yeah, their they're secondary, if they don't have Mukwamu, is going to have two guys who are probably in that class below their top group. And those two guys are going to have to, you know, straighten up and fly right really quick because... Kyle Trask is smart enough and good enough to target them.
0: Yeah, Mukwamu, we, we talked to Coach Muschamp on Tuesday, and he kind of gave the the very vague description that he was moving well in practice. What exactly that entails, we're never really sure. He said he's day-to-day. I think we've, we've had enough experience with Coach Muschamp to know that that could mean a whole range of things.
1: Yeah, I think that if you're a Gamecocks fan, especially after the way last year went when every questionable usually meant out— if you were a fan, I wouldn't count on him being there necessarily. I mean, he could surprise; he could turn around by the end of the week. But you know, they might have to go without him, and that's going to mean a a lot of trying to hold on against a really good Florida passing game. And I think it's also interesting because the Gators, traditionally under Dan Mullen, have been a QB run team, and Kyle Trask not that much of a runner, so they've t- really totally transitioned to kind of a more balanced pro-style thing within his style of spread. And that's been very effective because Dan Mullen is an incredibly good play caller. So I think that, yeah, if Mukwamu can't go, it's going to be probably rough going. And based on all of our history, there's not much indication that he's going to be ready to go, or at least not much that we can totally believe up until the moment that it actually happens.
0: One thing I wanted to circle back on was you, you talked about defensive backs that are good. You, you rarely hear them called. And one guy that was like that in the opener was J.C. Horn. I think he recorded just, just one tackle all game, as they really just completely avoided him for the most part. I, I, I don't know exactly how many times his cover was targeted, but it definitely seemed like they were they were staying away from him. But at the same time, when you can target someone like a Cam Smith instead of a J. C. Horn, that seems like a pretty easy choice to make. So that maybe a little bit of what we might see this weekend at Florida.
1: I could potentially see that. One thing that Tennessee that was doing was doing that was kind of interesting was they were going with a lot of unbalanced sets, and for whatever reason those unbalanced sets were being matched by zone defenses, which would end with a linebacker or safety kind of widening out to trip side, and then J.C. Horn would basically be kind of an edge player on a spot without a receiver. So he ended up actually blitzing a couple times, but there were a lot more times when he was sort of pulled into the box than I was sort of ready, uh, was sort of expecting and ready for. I kind of doubt that Florida would bother copying Tennessee's game plan because they, you know, probably have their own game plan. that's pretty good. So I'll be interested to kind of see on that front. And I'll also be interested to see where they play J.C. Horn, because in theory he can play nickel. He is probably, I mean, he's almost assuredly the best defensive back on this team, especially if, uh, and if his Romquam moves out, he's 100% the best defensive back on this team. And two of the most dangerous playmakers for this Florida team are Pitts and Kadarius Tony, who I think plays a not insignificant amount of slot. So you might end up seeing them kick JC Horn inside just because he's going to have to match one of those two better players, and if they're inside... Why not keep him inside?
0: Well, that was going to be my next question. Who defends Kyle Pitts? Just an amazingly talented player who, when you look at South Carolina's safeties or linebackers, there's not, I don't think, an obvious coverage situation there. How do you think they're going to try and attack that, that matchup problem? I have no idea. I just have no idea because <laughs> Kyle Pitts is very tall
1: and very athletic and also a good run blocker. And South Carolina, for everything it has in the secondary, does not necessarily have... I mean, no one has anyone who can match up with that kind of size. You might have some really athletic, super talented kids over at Alabama, maybe LSU in some of their recruiting classes, but there aren't a lot of humans that can match up with your Kyle Pitts-type players. So if they're in a lot of man situations, J.C. Horn would probably be your most talented player. Jamie Robinson is probably a step down in coverage from Horn, but he's probably their second most reliable player, especially if Izzy can go. I don't know if they would want to let Izzy play against Kyle Pitts if he can go, just because Pitts is also pretty physical, and uh, Mukwamu is a lot of stuff, but I don't necessarily know that he's the most physical player. So, I mean, that's just kind of a problem. There's no really great answer there. And I think that's part of what makes Florida so tricky is that you've got at least two playmakers that will win a lot of one-on-ones. And you've got a good distributor who can get the ball to a bunch of other guys who maybe they're not quite on the level of some of their those better players, but they're still pretty darn good, all things considered.
0: You mentioned the, the miscue on the punt that, that wound up costing South Carolina its final chance at a game-winning drive against Tennessee. And after that game, you wrote a column kind of, talking about the raggedness of the game of of the team and I was just kind of curious if you could elaborate a little bit on that on you know it's been a long weird off season and I think a lot of national observers have kind of chalked up some of the special teams miscues to stuff like that or do you see this as more of something specific to South Carolina
1: I think it's very much in line with the national situation to some degree or another I think South Carolina has had problems in openers. Now, I mostly was focusing on the last two. They played below their talent level last season, and two years ago, they beat up Coastal Carolina, but it wasn't particularly smooth. It wasn't particularly clean. Now, they won their first two openers under Will Muschamp. The first one, that team was just in such a weird space. It's hard to call anything about it ragged. And the second one, they did beat NC State. They also got outgained 2-1 to and sort of had to pull it off by hook or by crook so it seemed like early on they kind of managed to have those couple extra plays that they sort of needed and these last three openers now they really haven't they've especially the last two they've been a couple plays short and they've had plenty of miscues that could sort of fall into that category so i think that you could very easily explain it and say well it was a weird off season. they didn't have the normal amount of Preparation, the normal style of preparation. They've been all been missing, you know, big chunks of their roster here, there, and everywhere to COVID. So that's understandable. But I think oh, some, one of the points I was trying to get across in this column was basically even if you take all that and acknowledge it, South Carolina in that particular game needed to be better than that. They just did because this was going to be a game that. Was going to be tight. And, you know, even if everything had been normal, it probably would have been tight. And this was a game where they just couldn't afford to be the team that made two, three, four more mistakes. And then they were that team. And it wasn't like, you know, Tennessee played great. Tennessee played sloppy as all heck, just the same as South Carolina did. And they got or made the few extra plays they needed, and South Carolina didn't. And that's why South Carolina is looking at a season where. I haven't double-checked the projections today, but I don't know that there's a ton of projections that are going to put them above three wins, and most of them are putting them maybe a hint below three wins. So that was a game they needed, and it was a situation where they couldn't afford those kind of missteps, and they made most of them.
0: Looking at this challenging road ahead, we're looking at the Florida game. They opened as 22-point underdogs, one of the biggest spreads in this series in the past couple decades. The line's down down to 17.5, but this is, quite frankly, not a game that South Carolina is expected to win by national pundits, by its fans, by anything. So my question for you is, what do you want to see in this game to give you some some hope for this season if you're a South Carolina fan, especially because the week after this they play Vanderbilt, which is probably the definition of a must-win in that, you know, if they don't win that, then they're in real big trouble. That's the one they probably should win.
1: Correct. Um, I think if you're a Gamecocks fan and you're looking at this game, the first thing you want to see is more offensive progress. The Florida defense is always very good. It is extremely blitz heavy. And I think with the way that Mike Bobo's offense operates, it might be able to take a little bit of advantage of that, be able to be more efficient, get the screen game working, all that sort of stuff. I think that's really where, if South Carolina is going to compete, they're going to have to hang their hat because slowing down a Dan Mullen offense with a good passing quarterback is just not going to be super easy to do unless you have, you know, Georgia or Auburn level talent and South Carolina doesn't right now. And if if South Carolina somehow were to come in and, you know, play extremely well on defense and hold down the Florida offense, that would be a great sign for this team. That would tell you all sorts of good stuff. But I think that's probably less likely to happen than the offense continuing to find some kind of footing and getting itself sort of in gear. Now, granted, that defense, if it starts getting home with those blitzes, could make for an extremely long day, but I think the offense has a better chance to take advantage of that than vice versa.
0: All right, that's all for this episode. Ben will be down in Gainesville covering the Florida game, so be sure to follow him at—what's your Twitter handle, Ben? State At State. got it. Well, we'll have more coverage for you at GoGameCox.com, so please be sure to visit there. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.